Hey there, it's Alex. Just a really quick announcement before we get started here. We were totally booked out for our Cost of Glory Rome retreat this summer, 2024, June 30th through July 7th. But we've managed to make some adjustments and we've found room for another one or two slots. So if you're interested in visiting the great sites of Rome, discussing the merits of Rome's greatest men with me, and also improving as a speaker with the insights of ancient rhetoric and a whole lot of live practice and discussion, check out the retreat website at costofglory.com retreat. Hope to see you in Rome. Okay, now for the episode. Hey there. So, without a doubt, two of the most dangerous men in the entire history of ancient Greece and Rome, Lysander and Sulla. Both of these guys were commanders. Their contemporaries described both of them as having traits of both the lion and, most especially, the fox. Both of them sieged and subdued the great city of Athens. Both of them stood on the cusp of enacting a fundamental regime change. One of them, arguably both, stepped back from that brink in the end. There are a lot of reasons that Plutarch decided to pair these two together. They were incredibly impressive guys and comparable in a lot of ways. But considering their records, it's understandable that when it comes to the question of, say, whether either of them was more good than bad, or whether they deserved more praise or more blame, or, say, which one was more evil. Well, there are strong opinions on both sides of the debate. And some people might even say, well, good, evil, praise, blame, these aren't even the most interesting questions to ask about Lysander and Sulla. You may want to talk instead about which one of them had a more successful life, accomplished his goals more effectively, or which one of them had the greater set of achievements, whose stats were higher in which category, who was the greatest overall across the board. Well, someone also might say, well, men who had such different lives and came from such different cultures faced such different problems. Well, it's apples and oranges, really, isn't it? Squares and circles. You can't compare them. But that's not what Plutarch thought. This is Alex Petkus, and you're listening to The Cost of Glory. We'll get to these questions in a second. This is our comparison episode. We're going to do this for all the pairs of Greeks and Romans that Plutarch put together. But first, I want to give a little credit to some of the main sources that I used in putting together Sulla's life, as I did also for Lysander, and that's in the Lysander Aftermath episode, episode 39. Well then, of course, for ancient sources, if you want to read further for Sulla, the place to start is Plutarch's Life of Sulla, also his lives of Sertorius, Marius, Pompey, and don't forget Lucullus for the Mithridates story. Appian's history on the Roman Civil War also is a good place to go. It keeps the full narrative of all the events, starting with the Gracchi and going on through the Civil Wars. Appian is also a major source on Mithridates, his uh, books on the Mithridatic War. Those are available in the Loeb series. And there are also some speeches of Cicero worth looking at for the reign of Sulla as dictator, because he was there. And uh, the pro sexto Roscio in particular is a good place to go. And also, let's not forget Sallust, who 
tells the story of Sulla's first emergence on the scene of Roman politics and war in the book of his called The War with Jugurtha. As for secondary sources, Arthur Keaveny's Sulla, the Last Republican, is an important resource. The author sadly passed away of COVID-19 recently. Um, Theodore Momsen's History of Rome is a classic take that I used at points. I also really enjoyed Gareth Sampson's book, The First Roman Civil War, especially on the military details. Catherine Steele's book, The End of the Roman Republic, Conquest and Crisis, is a great up-to-date survey of this period, and I also want to thank her for graciously sending me a PDF copy of her chapter on Sulla the Orator, drawn from a 2020 volume on Sulla. Adrian Mayer's book, The Poison King, is a perfect starting and finishing point for anything having to do with that wily king of Pontus, Mithridates. Okay, Plutarch, as you may remember, was all about comparing the lives and characters and actions of two great men, a Greek and a Roman. He wrote parallel lives, and he called them that, lives literally put next to each other in Greek. He wanted to train us to put ourselves next to these men too, to train ourselves to ask, what would it take to achieve what they did? And to compare ourselves, and maybe just as importantly, to compare the leaders that we meet in our lives to these great figures and have, have a kind of a measuring stick to judge other people in our lives by. That's how Harry Truman used Plutarch's lives. So here's Plutarch's comparison of Lysander and Sulla. And in this case, the text of the comparison that he wrote survives. With some of the biography pairs, the comparison was lost in the sands of time, so I have to kind of make something up. But this one actually survives, so I'm going to give it to you, and it's not that long. I'll pause here and there to offer some comments and reminders. But let's go ahead and read this. Here's what Plutarch says. Quote, And now, since we have completed this life also, the life of Sulla, he means, let us come at once to the comparison. In this respect, then, they were alike, namely, that both were founders of their own greatness. But it was a peculiar virtue in Lysander that he obtained all his high offices with the consent of his fellow citizens, and when affairs were in a sound condition. He did not force anything from them against their will, nor did he acquire any power which was contrary to the laws. I'll pause here for a second. Now, Plutarch is reminding us here of how Lysander was born not into a rich and influential family, but as a Mothox, which is someone in Spartan society who needed a patron to secure him a spot in the elite Spartan training school, whether for lack of financial resources or some other reason. Probably financial resources was the issue in this case. And then Lysander was elected Navarch, elected Navarch, picked by his countrymen, and when his turn was up, he laid down his office. He didn't push past the limits of his office contrary to laws. And it's also true that Sparta was a reasonably healthy state when Lysander rose to power. And Sulla, too, was a sort of a self-made man. At least he wasn't born wealthy, uh, though he was born into a good family. He did, though, catch a break pretty early in his career by inheriting some money. But of course, what matters is what you do with those kind of opportunities, and he certainly made the most of that. But Plutarch goes on here to contrast the health of Rome with the health of Sparta the health of Rome during Sulla's rise. And here he is, continuing. Quote, But, 
As the poet said, in a time of sedition, the base man too is an honor. And so, at Rome at this time, since the people was corrupt and their government in a distempered state, men of various origins rose to power. And it is no wonder that Sulla held sway when such men as Glaucia and Saturninus drove such men as Metellus from the city. That's a story we've told in Life of Marius, by the way. When sons of consuls were butchered in assemblies, when silver and gold purchased arms and men to wield them, and laws were enacted with fire and sword in defiance of all opposition. Now I do not blame the man who, in such a state of affairs, forced his way into supreme power, but I cannot regard his becoming first man, when the city was in such an evil plight, as a proof that he was also the best man. Whereas Lysander, since Sparta was at the height of good government and sobriety when she sent him forth upon the greatest commands and undertakings, was virtually decided to be first of her first men and best of her best. Lysander, therefore, though he often surrendered his power into the hands of his fellow citizens, as often received it back again, since the honor accorded to virtue continued to rank highest in the state. But Sulla, when he had once been chosen leader of an army, remained in arms for ten years together, making himself now consul and now dictator, but always being a usurper. I'm going to pause here for a second, and I think Plutarch's a little unfair to Sulla here, since Sulla left on campaign as a proconsul, and a Roman proconsul technically does retain legal power until he re-enters the city of Rome. Plutarch, perhaps not so familiar with the details, the fine details of Republican law and precedent there. Um, but Sulla had a legal framework. However, you could definitely say that he stretched it far beyond the spirit of the law. But either way, there's a, there's a takeaway here. Chaos opens up opportunities for men of more flawed character or more checkered pasts to rise. And if you're listening to this and you're feeling like you're in the middle of some economic or political downturn or maybe just a crisis at the company that you're working at or in the market that you are in, maybe now is the time to get ready and seize opportunities. Maybe that thing in your past that you're worried about being held against you doesn't matter as much as you think it does. Think about young Pompey and Crassus, who never could have come to prominence so early in their lives if the Roman state wasn't in such a terrible crisis with the civil war raging, when men of talent were needed more than ever and people were willing to bend the rules or even break them. Okay, continuing on here. Quote, It is true, indeed, that Lysander attempted, as I have said, to change the form of government, but it was by milder and more legal methods than Sulla's, by persuasion, namely, not by force of arms, nor by subverting everything at once, as Sulla did, but by amending merely the appointment of the kings. And do you remember, by the way, the story of Lysander trying to get the oracles to prophesy that some god wanted Sparta to choose kings from the best men and not just from hereditary inheritance? That was tricky, right? But at least it wasn't murderous. Okay, continuing with Plutarch. Quote, and it seemed but natural justice in a way that the best of the best should rule by virtue of his excellence and not 
of his noble birth in a city which had the leadership in Greece. And then Plutarch gives here a kind of a funny argument for why Lysander's plan was reasonable. Quote, For just as a hunter looks for a good dog and not the puppy of some certain bitch, and a horseman for a good horse and not just for the foal of a certain mare, because what if the foal turns out to be a mule? So the statesman makes an utter mistake if he inquires not what sort of man the ruler is, but from whom he is descended. And indeed, the Spartans themselves deposed some of their kings for the reason that they were not kingly men, but insignificant nobodies. And if vice, even in a man of ancient family, is dishonorable, then virtue must be honorable for its own sake and not because of one's good birth. And continuing on here with more Plutarch, moreover, the acts of injustice which one wrought were on behalf of his friends, while the other's injustices came even upon his friends. For it is generally agreed that Lysander committed the most of his transgressions for the sake of his comrades, and that most of his massacres were perpetrated to maintain their power and sovereignty. Plutarch, thinking here of the decarchies, Lysander's cliques of local supporters to keep cities loyal to Sparta, Quote, but Sulla reduced the number of Pompey's soldiers out of envy and tried to take away from Dolabella the naval command which he had given him. We didn't talk about those in the biography, but that happened. And when Ophella wanted to run for the consulship as a reward for his many great services, Sulla ordered him to be slain before his eyes, causing all men to regard him with fear and horror because of his murdering his dearest friends. And pause there. So in sum, one of Lysander's flaws was that he took his friend's side, even when they were bad and did unjust things. It's like even then he backed them up. And of course he did that because they were Sparta's men too. It was representing Sparta's interests that he was doing that. And they were representing Sparta's interests in the cities throughout the Aegean. But Sulla did a few things in his last year or two, especially to undermine or even kill people who had gone out of their way to help him and taken major risks for him. So going on here, quote, Still further in their pursuit of riches and pleasures, we discover that the purpose of one was more befitting a commander, that of the other more characteristic of a tyrant. Lysander appears to have perpetrated no act of wantonness or youthful folly while he enjoyed such great authority and power. Nay, if ever man did, he avoided the praise and reproach of the proverb, Lions at home, but foxes abroad. So sober, Spartan, and restrained was the way of life which he everywhere manifested. End quote. And that was a famous saying about the Spartans, that they had this value of being straightforward and brave like lions in their personal lives, at home, at Sparta, and with their allies. But in war against their enemies, they were actually very tricky and deceitful like foxes. And what Plutarch says here about Lysander kind of goes against some of the more negative comments that he makes about him in the biography. He's actually kind of positive about Lysander here. So maybe Plutarch is starting to like Lysander more now that he's comparing him with Sulla. Okay, moving on. Quote, But Sulla allowed neither the poverty of his youth to set bounds to his desires, nor the years of his old age, 
but continued to introduce marriage and sumptuary laws for the citizens, while he himself was living in lewdness and adultery, as Sallust says. And in these courses, he so impoverished and emptied the city of her wealth that he sold to allied and friendly cities their freedom and independence for money. Although he was daily confiscating and selling at public auction the wealthiest and greatest estates, Nay, there was no measuring what he lavishly squandered and threw away upon his flatterers. For what calculation or economy could be expected in his convivial associations and delights, when on a public occasion with people standing about at the sale of a large property, he ordered the crier to knock it down to one of his friends at a nominal price. And when another bidder raised the price and the crier announced the advance, Sulla flew into a rage, saying, It is a dreadful wrong, my dear citizens, and a piece of usurpation that I cannot dispose of my own spoils as I wish. We'll pause there for a moment. So, I mean, there's another example of Sulla playing favorites with his friends. Sulla really was notorious for handling those prescriptions corruptly, letting his cronies profiteer, often at the expense of innocent people. And Plutarch contrasts Lysander here, quote, but Lysander sent home for public use even the presents which had been given to him, along with the rest of the spoils. Not that I commend what he did, for Lysander, perhaps by his acquisition of money for Sparta, injured her more than Sulla injured Rome by robbing her of it. But I offer this rather as proof of the man's indifference to riches. Moreover, each had a peculiar experience with his own city— Sulla, who knew no restraint in his extravagance, tried to bring the citizens into ways of sobriety, while Lysander filled his city with the passions to which he himself was a stranger. Sulla erred, therefore, in falling below the standard of his own laws. Lysander erred in causing the citizens to fall below his own standard, since he taught Sparta to want what he himself had learned not to want. Such was the influence that they had as statesmen. Just to pause there, you can recall how the Spartans didn't allow private citizens to possess foreign coins. They had those useless iron spits as currency beforehand. And more about the decline of Sparta, though, in the biography of Agesilaus, coming soon. Moving on with Plutarch here. But as regards contests and war, achievement and generalship, number of trophies and magnitude of dangers encountered, Sulla is beyond compare. Lysander, it is true, won two victories in as many naval battles, and I will add to his exploits his siege of Athens, which was really not a great affair, although the reputation of it was most brilliant. What occurred in Boeotia and at Haliartus and he's talking about Lysander's death here, was due, perhaps, to a certain evil fortune. But it looks as though he was injudicious in not waiting for the large forces of King Pausanias, which had all but arrived from Plataea, instead of allowing his resentment and ambition to lead him into an inopportune assault upon the walls, with the result that an inconsiderable and random body of men sallied out and overwhelmed him. And here, Plutarch's going to criticize Lysander on the way that he died, I think a little bit unfairly, but it's an interesting point that he makes, and I think that we can generalize with it, so 
Here's what Plutarch says, quote, For he received his death wound not as the Spartan king Cleombrotus did at Leuctra, standing firm against the enemy's onsets, nor as Cyrus did or Epaminondas, rallying his men and assuring the victory to them. These all died the death of kings and generals. But Lysander threw away his life ingloriously, like a common targeteer or skirmisher. A targeteer is a light infantry soldier. And Lysander bore witness to the wisdom of the ancient Spartans in avoiding assaults on walled cities, where not only an ordinary man, but even a child or a woman may chance to smite and slay the mightiest warrior, as Achilles, they say, was slain by Paris at the gates of Troy. And Plutarch may also have in mind the way that King Pyrrhus died, famously, by a roof tile in the street fighting during his night attack on Argos. Or he may be thinking, too, of an episode in the life of Sertorius, where Sertorius challenges Metellus to a duel, but Metellus declines, and Plutarch actually approves, because he says a general should die like a general and not like a targeteer. Interesting. Maybe that's the argument that you use when you want to justify a general not getting into the mix in hand-to-hand combat along with the soldiers. Well, anyway, there's Plutarch's take on Lysander's military record. It was successful, except for the last battle, but relatively limited. But here's what he says about Sulla. Quote, In Sulla's case, however, it is no easy matter even to enumerate the pitched battles which he won and the myriads of enemies whom he slew. Rome itself he captured twice, and he took the Piraeus of Athens, not by famine, as Lysander did, but by a series of great battles after he had driven Archelaus from the land to the sea. It is important, too, that we consider the character of the antagonists of Lysander and Sulla, for I think it was the merest child's play to win in a sea fight against Antiochus, Alcibiades' pilot, that would be at the Battle of Notion, or to outwit Philocles, the Athenian demagogue, who was, as the poet says, an inglorious foe whose only weapon is a sharpened tongue. And uh, Philocles, of course, is the commander at the Battle of Aegospotomy, that great disaster for the Athenians. Continuing on, quote, Such men as these, Mithridates would not have deigned to compare with his groom, nor Marius with his lictor. But of the dynasts, consuls, generals, and demagogues who lifted themselves up against Sulla, to pass by the rest, who among the Romans was more formidable than Marius? Who among the kings was more powerful than Mithridates? Who among the Italians was more warlike than Lamponius and Telesinus? And yet Sulla banished the first of these, subdued the second, and slew the others. It's hard to argue with Plutarch here that Sulla was the more impressive commander because he fought so many more battles against enemies who, at the very least, had so many more resources at their disposal. Alcibiades would have been a match for Mithridates, probably, or just about anyone, if he had the forces at his command. But of course, Lysander never even faced Alcibiades on the battlefield. But that was no accident. That was maybe a a part of Lysander's generalship. You could argue that it was part of Lysander's brilliance, defeating 
Alcibiades without ever having to fight him. But coming to the end here, continuing on with Plutarch, quote, But what is of more weight, in my opinion, than anything yet mentioned? Lysander achieved all his success with the cooperation of the authorities at home, whereas Sulla, though he was overpowered by a hostile faction and an exile at a time when his wife was being driven from home, his house being demolished, and his friends being slain, when he himself too was confronting countless myriads of enemies in Boeotia and risking his life for his country, set up his trophy of victory. And, pausing here, it, it may not speak to Sulla's goodness or his probity, but, you know, the fact that he won so many victories while he was an enemy of the state says a lot about his competence and his sheer daring. Continuing on, quote, And not even when Mithridates offered him an alliance and forces to wield against his enemies at Rome, would he make any concession whatsoever or show kindness even to him. Nay, he would not so much as greet him or give him his hand until he heard Mithridates say personally that he would relinquish Asia, hand over his ships, and restore Bithynia and Cappadocia to their rightful kings. No act of Sulla's whatsoever appears more honorable than this, or due to a loftier spirit, because he set the public interests before his own, and, like dogs of noble breed, did not relax his bite or let go his hold until his adversary had yielded, and then only did he set out to avenge his own private wrongs. And besides all this, their treatment of Athens is of some weight in a comparison of their characters. Sulla, after taking the city, although it had fought against him to support the power and supremacy of Mithridates, restored her to freedom and independence. Whereas Lysander, although she had fallen from such a great supremacy and empire, showed her no pity, but took away her democratic form of government and appointed most savage and lawless men to be her tyrants. We may now consider whether we shall err very much from the truth in pronouncing our verdict that Sulla won the more successes while Lysander had the fewer failings and in giving to one the preeminence of self-control and moderation but to the other in generalship and valor. End quote. Well, there you have it, folks. Plutarch's final word on these men. It's up to you which qualities of Lysander and Sulla you choose to emulate, which mistakes you choose to avoid. You will want to take into consideration your own natural strengths and weaknesses, the caliber of the people that you're surrounded with and have access to. And of course, you want to ask yourself, what does the particular little world that I inhabit need most of me now? And I think you're going to find, inevitably, that it's going to be some version of virtue. Thanks for listening. Stay strong. Stay ancient. This is Alex Petkus. Until next time. <laughs>